Welcome to the Cybersecurity TLDR Show, where we save you time by providing you the too-long-didn't-read summary of cybersecurity topics and news. You can find us on YouTube with video and all the popular podcasting platforms for audio on the go. Now let's get over to your host, John Good. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm your host, John Good, and this is your Threat Intel Briefing for February 26, 2023 through March 4th, 2023. You're watching on YouTube, make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. That way YouTube keeps pushing out new content when it drops to you. And if you're listening on a podcasting platform, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review on there as well. I read all that feedback and I try to incorporate it to make the show better for you. Also make sure to check out the description because there is a link to the show notes where you can actually check out the articles that we talked about. So if you wanna read a little bit more about those. Also, other articles that occur during the week that we didn't get time, uh, didn't have time to get to. So make sure to check that out. And again, that'll be on my website, jonga.com, where you can check those out, but there will be a link in the show notes. Without any further delay, we're gonna go ahead and jump into the articles. So first article, TELUS investigating leak of stolen source code employee data. Canada's second largest telecom, TELUS, is investigating a potential data breach after a threat actor shared samples online of what appears to be employee data. The threat actors subsequently posted screenshots that apparently show private source code repositories and payroll records held by the company. TELUS has, uh, has so far not found evidence of corporate or retail customer data being stolen and continues to monitor the potential incident. On February 17th, a threat actor put up what they claimed to be TELUS employee list uh, com uh, comprising names and email addresses for sale on a data breach form. TELUS employees from a very recent breach said that uh, we have over 76,000 unique emails. And on top of this, we have internal information associated with employees scraped from TELUS API states the form post. So, you know, with this, really, as far as a company and your security department, one of the important things is not only to prevent incidents, right? You want to prevent data breaches and things like that, but also how fast can you detect when you have an incident? And then how much do you know about that actual incident, right? What can you surmise from the information from the logs about what that attacker or that group was actually able to access? How sure are you of that information? A lot of times companies, they might have an idea of what happened or the attacker got in here and they went and did this, but maybe they don't have very granular information about, for instance, what kind of data was accessed. And that's really important because if you're under regulations or laws or compliance requirements that actually require you to know that, for instance, if they access personally, personally identifiable information or healthcare information, right? And you can't actually identify that, that's a serious issue because then it's like, well, this minor breach where maybe they really didn't access any of that kind of information, but you can't identify that, you can't determine that, so really it turns into this big thing, right? So knowing those kinds of actions and being able to really put the pieces back together of what happened is extremely important in any breach, and you should really strive to actually get to that point. Obviously, a large telecom provider or a large company that has a ton of data Right? There's gonna be a lot of different kinds of data that you have to be aware of. 
And it really comes down to knowing what kind of data you have, knowing where that's stored, having these different indicators and sensors in place so that you can identify that and really detect that as you're going through the incident response process. So really, really important and not enough companies are at that level, but especially if you are looking to get into this career field or you're looking for ways to improve your security posture in a company, that's a really good place to start, right? Especially from a, a detection standpoint is really improving those detection times and your capabilities as far as understanding where attackers went and what they did. So very important. Next article, Dish Network goes offline after likely cyber attack employees cut off. American TV giant, a satellite broadcast provider, Dish Network, has mysteriously gone offline with its websites and apps ceasing to function over the past 24 hours. So this article came out on the 27th, wide, uh, fe uh, February. The widespread outage affects the Dish.com website, Dish Anywhere app, as well as several websites and networks owned by the corporation. Customers also suggest the company's call center phone numbers are unreachable. Additionally, customers are facing authentication issues when signing into TV channel apps such as MTV and Stars via the, uh, their DISH credentials. DISH Network's uh, remote employees have been cut off from accessing their work systems. So when your company gets breached, what kind of business continuity or disaster recovery plans do you have in place, right? This is a perfect example of that. If your critical apps or services don't have a continuity plan associated with them or disaster recovery plan associated with them, you're gonna be in a world of hurt because your critical apps and services are gonna go down at some point, whether that's human error or an attack or whatever the case is, right? And it takes down those systems and then you can't make money for that. Or worse, right? Your customers have to get paid back, discounted something, right? Because you weren't providing the service that you said you were gonna provide, especially if there's like SLAs, so service level agreements in place, you know, that becomes even bigger issue because those repayments or discounts or whatever become dramatically more important and usually they're larger, right? And that's gonna damage your brand reputation, that's gonna damage a lot of things, right? You might lose customers over that aspect. You might lose money. If you're small enough or you know, in certain situations, your company might go bankrupt, right? Like if that's a critical system or a critical application or service or something, your company might go bankrupt if that goes down. So business continuity and disaster recovery planning are crucial. Now, if you're not familiar with what the difference between them are, Basically, at kind of like an elementary level, a basic level, business continuity means what do you do or what kinds of things do you have in place to keep the business running? So those critical services, critical applications, and basically you have it prioritized, right? So you really want to focus on the really critical stuff. And then your disaster recovery is kind of how you get back to that main, that normal state, if you will, right? So how do you get everything back to going? And sometimes you might have to initiate another site, like an alternate work site. Maybe you have something called like a hot site or a warm site or a cold site, which are basically just other sites of varying readiness. So maybe if you have like a hot site, then you would have a duplicate or redundant setup to what you have at your main data center. So that would mean all the applications, the servers, 
services, maybe even that it has the data there, right? Like maybe you're putting redundant copies of data over in that service so you can just flip a switch and then you're back up and running. And then all the way down to like cold sites where maybe you have like the actual building, but you don't have like equipment in there or data or, you know, an internet connection or something like that, right? It's going to vary as far as the readiness all the way from hot down to cold. But then you have things like cloud, right? Where that can come into play because with cloud, you can have other availability zones or just other setups where you can kind of fail over into those other systems. Cloud is obviously pretty secure. So that increases your ability to be redundant in any kind of situation where things, you know, might go down or might go out. You know, especially in traditional world, the uh, traditional historical kind of setup, we would have these alternate sites. With cloud and that increased adoption, a lot of it's going more to the cloud where you don't have to necessarily worry about having like another lease on another building or something like that. So these are all things you have to consider because you cannot allow your critical systems and services to go down. It's so important. And especially if your, whatever you're offering, your service, your application, you know, whatever the case may be, if human lives depend on that, there's even more regulations and restrictions and requirements that are gonna be in place for that because then you really can't go down. If it's just an application, maybe you can suffer a couple hours of downtime. Maybe you can suffer a day of uh, downtime or outage. Maybe not, right? It all depends on the business model and what you're offering. So keep that in mind. So the next article that actually follows up with that article is Dish tells SEC that ransomware attack caused outages. Personal information may have been stolen. So this came out on March 1st. Satellite broadcast giant Dish told the SEC on Tuesday that a ransomware attack is what caused system issues that occurred over the weekend. In an 8K form filing, which is something that you give to the SEC, Dish confirmed uh, rumors that they have been hit with ransomware, warning that on Monday they became aware that certain data was ex extracted from the corporation's IT systems as part of the incident. The forensics investigation and assessment of the impact of this incident is ongoing. Dish, Sling, and our wireless and data networks remain operational. However, the corporation's internal communications, customer call centers, and internet sites have been affected. The corporation is actively engaged in restoring the affected systems and is making steady progress. The incident response firm has been hired and they are still investigating the attack, the company said. They reportedly informed investors of the outage on an earnings call on February 23rd. So, especially if you're in the United States, but I'm sure it's like this in other countries, where you're a publicly traded company, where other people have vested interest in your company, they own stock, you have to be transparent with those shareholders, right? That's one issue that gets a lot of executives in trouble is when they try to deceit, especially their shareholders, not just their customers, because obviously that's really bad and deceitful, but their shareholders who actually own part of the company, right? And in the United States, it's taken very seriously and when that happens with executives, they get in a lot of trouble, right? So the other thing to really focus on and understand about incidents, right, is, for instance, uh, press releases. So how do you communicate to customers, to the world, or whoever you have to communicate to 
what happened, right? What information is included in that? When do you have to do that in response to when you find out there's an incident? And how many, is there requirements on how many records were act, uh, accessed? And does that indicate a certain level of notification or a certain type of notification, certain responses to that? Maybe you have to give things like credit monitoring or something like that, right? There's all this kind of stuff. Then also, how do you respond to the incidents, right? So do you hire an external party to come in and actually perform forensics on your systems? That's typically a good situation or not a good situation, but a good decision to do because even if it's not required, you wanna bring in an external party typically with something like that because you wanna have somebody who specializes in that process to really get a good idea of what happened and not be biased because they're an internal employee, right? That's just kind of you know an important thing. If it is a legal matter, then yeah, you're absolutely gonna have to have somebody come in from the outside and actually take a look at what happened. Probably will have law enforcement involved, right? Especially if it's a, uh, if there's some kind of legal implication involved with that. So really important, incidents are no joke. Uh, and yeah, you have, to, you have to respond to them appropriately, right? Next article, at least one open source vulnerability found in 84% of code bases. At a time when almost all software contains open source code, at least one known open source vulnerability was detected in 84% of all commercial and proprietary code bases examined by researchers at application security company Synopsys. In addition, 48% of all code bases analyzed by Synopsys researchers contain high-risk vulnerabilities, which are those that have been actively exploited, already have documented proof-of-concept exploits, or are classified as remote code execution vulnerabilities. The uh, report is based on analysis of audits of code bases involved in merger and acquisition transactions and highlights trends in open source usage across 17 industries. Synopsys audit services unit audit codes to identify software risks for companies involved in merger and acquisition deals. Audits examined 1,481 code bases vulnerabilities and open source licensing compliance and 222 other code bases were analyzed only for compliance. So a lot of, lot of things to unpack here. First of all, when vulnerabilities are found in your code base, right? Because you should have vulnerabilities scanning. If you're in a DevOps kind of environment, you should have in your pipeline vulnerability scanning as part of that and as part of your acceptance gates or your approval gates to push that code into production, right? Like that just should be part of how you do business. Next thing that you have to consider is your SLAs with regards to vulnerability management. So if I find a vulnerability, right, and it is rated a medium, let's say, or a high or a critical, whatever, right? Like it's rated one of these levels. What is the time frame that I have to get that mitigated? Okay, so you have to think about this in a couple of different phases, not only through that pipeline, right? So when your code is going through and vulnerabilities are detected because you might not allow code to go through if it has really, really bad vulnerabilities. But am I allowed to go through with that code? Is it okay? Or do I have to address those vulnerabilities? Then when it gets out into the wild, you still have to continuously scan things, right? 
And then what is the remediation timeframe for that? Is it different than the timeframe as it's coming through development? You have to make that decision internally in your department, in your company, but you have to consider that, right? Because that time frame could be different, especially if it, uh, you know, you might be really strict as it comes through the pipeline. And then as it gets out into production, you might, you know, kind of step back a little bit, but typically you're going to have very strict requirements. And that might also not be like, I have to fix the vulnerability at this time frame or this, this requirement, this SLA, but I at least have to have a plan. Of, of how I'm going to fix that, right? And you might need approvals for that, but also, again, it's going to vary depending on the severity. That's the really important part. The next thing with this is that open source code is increasingly used in organizations, right? Like it makes sense because open source code a lot of times can be fixed or uh, new features and things like that are released a lot quicker in closed source software. And there's, you know, advantages to using open source versus closed source. There's advantages to using closed source versus open source, right? Like there's definitely pros and cons of both camps. But in open source software, you have to consider the implications of that, right? Where you're getting your code from. Where is that code within your code base? How deep into your code base is that, right? If you have some open source library that's in your code base and it's everywhere, like it's in the at the heart of your code base and there's a vulnerability that's detected, that's a serious issue. Even if there's a closed source piece of software that is the same kind of situation and it's really deep into your code base, you know, you've got to react similarly. But open source code is something that we're gonna start seeing more and more of. I mean, we're already seeing more and more of it all the time. You see it in all the industries you know, that are out there across the spectrum, right? But you can't just ignore that fact because it's open source. You can't just say, well, you know, it's open source, so there'll be a fix. It's community driven or something like that. You just, you really have to be on top of that. And I feel like, especially with open source, because a lot of times, right, you're acquiring that code from a entity or a group or somewhere, some source where, you know, you don't have to necessarily sign a contract to acquire that code. So do you lose sight of that code being in your code base or your, those libraries or whatever, right? Because with like closed source, maybe you go to like Microsoft and every year I have to sign a licensing agreement. So I'm tracking that in one way or fashion right? Like I'm tracking that money spent, those contracts, those uh, licensing keys acquired, right? It's not always the case with open source software. So you have to really be on top of how you're tracking when that software comes in and continuously looking for vulnerabilities. Next article, White House cybersecurity strategy to force large companies to make systems secure by design. Forthcoming White House cybersecurity strategy documents aims to force large companies to shoulder greater responsibility for designing secure products and to redesign digital ecosystems to be more secure. Camille Stewart Gloucester, the Deputy National Cyber Director for Technology and Ecosystem Security, said at a CyberScoop event, event uh, last week, Thursday, by shifting the burden back from the smaller players and towards larger players, 
that, uh, that can build in security by design, the strategy aims to deliver broader security gains, Stuart Gloucester said. Strategy documents also look, uh, the strategy documents also looks at how to re-architect our digital ecosystem so that we are creating further resilience, she said. The Biden administration has worked to draft the cybersecurity the strategy over the past year, an initiative that was spurred by a string of major breaches early in the administration, among them the SolarWinds and Kaisaya uh, breaches that saw attackers exploit vulnerabilities at companies that occupy central positions in the computer security ecosystem. So government in general is really concerned with any kind of software they bring in, right? Like a lot of companies, or well, really all companies should be, right? But one of the things that's really important in this particular article and that this particular article makes note of is that larger companies tend to have larger staff capabilities, right? They have more resources. They just have more overall capabilities. They have more security staff on board. At a small company, you know, it might be a team of five developers or something that develop some product and they can't de uh, devote all their attention to cybersecurity. That's kind of just an accepted thing, right? Like they're going to put in the security that they can and that is relevant to securing their product, but that's not at the core of everything they do unless it's a security product, right? A company like Microsoft has a ton of security staff, right? Like they have a ton. Amazon, AWS, Google, right? Like they have all these security people. And by forcing them to really focus on security and really implement more security, especially for these large products, because government tends to use a lot of large players, right? Like they'll use small players and medium-sized players, products, services, whatever, right? But, you know, especially for the mainstay products, the large staple products, they're going to use like a Microsoft, right? For Windows. That's just a given, right? Maybe they have some, some Apple, some Mac computers or something, but, you know, main players, right? They're not going to go to uh, Joe Smith's little computer shop and buy a million computers, <laughs> you know? So uh, it is interesting to see. I think that we are going to continue to see more regulation in general for cybersecurity, and that's just been the trend. And this is kind of just one of those things where we're gonna see more regulation, more strategy, more requirements, right? Because a lot of times with government, they push out requirements where maybe that's not necessarily a regulation, right? Like it's not a law, but the government can decide who they're gonna buy software from, and it's in their best interest to make sure that they're only buying secure things, right? Or where there's a focus on secure products or services. And that just has a trickle down effect where, you know, it may not be a law, but it's gonna be a requirement, right? If you wanna play ball with the government, you're gonna to have to do this. So really important. Uh, let's see here, CISA director or, or CISA director urges tech sector, CISA or CISA director urges tech sector to stop shipping unsafe products. Jen Easterly, director of U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, called on technology companies to take greater responsibility when it comes to cybersecurity of their products that are embedded into the very foundations of our society. 
remarks at a Carnegie Mellon University event on Monday echo a recent call to action from CISA or CISA for tech companies to fundamentally shift product design to one that embraces cybersecurity as a safety and product design issue. As we've integrated technology into nearly every facet of our lives, we've unwittingly come to accept as normal that such technology is dangerous by design, Easterly said. The CISA director's push to hold software makers more accountable for American cybersecurity comes as the Biden administration is concerning moves to compel the tech sector to shoulder more responsibility for the digital safety of critical U.S. industries. The forthcoming national cybersecurity strategy is widely expected to demand greater investments in uh, security from industries that prop up sectors such as energy, water, and healthcare. I mean, this just really piggybacks on that previous article, but we're seeing an increasing force of government regulation or government requirements rather to really urge companies to focus more on cybersecurity, right? You know, 10, 20 years ago, companies were really about just designing. I mean, a lot of times now, that's a lot of what companies are doing. They're just really focused on designing, creating, developing. But companies are continuously getting breached and hacked because they're creating products that are just naturally insecure, right? Because they're ignoring all these best practices and cybersecurity things that they need to do. And that's a serious issue. We're also seeing companies that are looking to buy products or services from other companies that are increasingly looking for compliance certifications and things like that, right? Because those really give sort of an attestation that you are putting certain security controls and requirements in place and that you're continuously maintaining them, right? So that's not really a trend that's going away and it's just increasing. So it's a great time to get into cybersecurity because there's gonna be a lot of hiring, right? I know obviously right now there's a lot of layoffs and things like that. They're still kind of going on, they're still lingering. But, you know, in the next five, 10, 20 years, it's just gonna keep increasing, right? So it's a really good time to be getting into this field and really focusing on a lot of compliance stuff, especially. And, you know, GRC, Governance, Risk and Compliance, that is an area that is just going to boom in the years to come because there's gonna be more regulations, there's gonna be more compliance requirements, there's gonna be a greater need, right? So GRC, Governance, Risk and Compliance. The other area, if you really are interested in another area is cloud, cloud and cloud security. Those two areas are really, really gonna be booming and emerging over the next five, 10, 20 years. Mark my words, right? Come back in five, 10, 20 years and let me know that you remember my quote saying that these areas were really gonna be important and really gonna be um, um, areas that people are hiring a lot of people for. So definitely, definitely uh, really important. Let's see here. LastPass says employees' home computer was hacked and corporate vault taken. Already smarting from a breach that put particularly encrypted login data into a threat actor's hands, LastPass said on Monday that the same attacker hacked an employee's computer, their home computer, and obtained a decrypted vault available to only a handful of company developers. Although an initial intrusion into LastPass ended on August 12th of last year, officials with the leading password manager said the threat actor was actively engaged in a new series of reconnaissance, enumeration, and exfiltration activity 
from August 12th to August 26th. In the process, the unknown threat actor was able to steal valid credentials from a senior DevOps engineer and access the contents of a LastPass data vault. Among other things, the vault gave access to a shared cloud storage environment that contained the encryption keys for customer vault backups stored in Amazon S3 buckets. This was accomplished by targeting the, dev the DevOps engineer home computer and exploiting a vulnerable third-party media software package, which enabled remote code execution capability and allowed the threat actor to implant keylogger malware, LastPass officials wrote. The threat actor was able to capture the employee's master password as it was entered after the employee authenticated with MFA, multi-factor authentic multi authentication, and gain access to the DevOps engineer's LastPass corporate vault. So really important point here, right? LastPass is just getting beat up and they are just getting beat up left and right. And it's, it's not going good for them, right? Like it's, it's a serious issue. Now, one of the things that I think we're gonna start seeing as far as a shift in kind of encryption and providing uh, companies or vendors your data is this shift more to customer provided keys, right? Typically and traditionally, the vendor or the, the third party, the company that was providing the service or application, they would provide the key, they would encrypt your data, right? And that has led to some issues, right? Especially with like LastPass, where your master key, your master password is what secures that, right? And in a sense, that's not bad, the idea of a master password or something encrypting data, right? But if that company owns the keys, right? And then they get compromised, well, then that data could be compromised then too. If, for instance, LastPass, if they had customers that provided their encryption key or that mechanism, right? And we're kind of going off that, that idea and like AWS or something like that, right? And, and LastPass gets hacked or breached, but they don't have access to the customer key because the customer has the, the key, well, then that data is still secure, right? It's still encrypted and it's still not compromised. So you can see how that kind of adds an extra layer of protection in that sense. And I think for companies, for vendors, for people providing applications or services, you know, that adds an extra layer of protection and less onus on them to protect those keys, right? That puts a lot of the responsibility on the customer because, you know, me as the vendor, as the third party, as the provider, I'm putting in the controls that are making this secure and then you're bringing your own key to the party. And so I don't even see your data. I have no access to your data. I'm just housing this encrypted blob and that's all I see. So it kind of protects both parties. And I think that's actually a pretty good idea. And I wouldn't be surprised to see a lot more vendors go to this. So like a, a Dropbox or something like that, right? That just makes sense to me logically that companies would kind of shift to that point. Uh, will we see? Will we see more articles about LastPass getting breached? I don't know. I mean, it just seems like there's more articles that come out all the time, but we'll kind of see, again, the LastPass online password manager versus other password managers and things like that. I mean, that's, that's a debate because there's, you know, there's a lot of things that can be debated in that sense. LastPass just to be, seems to be in the crosshairs right now, but, that's kind of an important consideration to uh, think about.
So that's going to be the last article for this week. And I'm, I'm John Good. This was your Threat Intel briefing for February 26, 2023 through March 4th, 2023. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. If you're listening on a podcasting platform, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. Also check out the description because there is a link to the show notes. We can check out all the articles that we talked about. You can read up more about them, the ones we covered. You can also read up about other articles that we didn't have time to cover and look a little bit more into those important events that didn't quite make the show. So with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap up for this week. I want to thank you for joining me. And until next time, I'll see you later.